morning. Good morning, church. You may be seated. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Christian Moscoso, and I am uh, one of the pastor elders here at Trinity, and I have missed you, church. It's been a while since I've been here, and I am so happy to be here. Um, so, yeah, like I said, my name is Christian Moscoso. Let me let you into a secret, okay? As kids, we all have nicknames, right? When we go to elementary school, middle school, we all have nicknames that we are scarred by for the rest of our lives. Now, you guys, most of you don't speak Spanish, but if you do, you would know that my name, my last name is Moscoso. Now, if you remove an S, it turns it into the word Mocoso, which means someone with boogers, okay? <laughs> So growing up, as you can imagine, elementary and middle school was miserable for someone with my last name, which is why I emigrated to a country where people don't even know how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> and so why am I telling you this? Because I've been sick for quite a few days and I am living up to my middle school nickname today. So if at any point I have to blow my nose, I am so sorry. We're also in... Uh, I've been here for a while, we've seen this happen before, and so it wouldn't be my first rodeo, so I apologize ahead of time. <laughs> With that said, <clears throat> it is my privilege to preach the word this morning. Uh, as you know, and Tim mentioned already, today is our first Sunday of Advent, which means um, we will be taking a break from our first and second Samuel series, and, because as the elders, we decided to... Uh, to, to name this mini-series, Advent series, if you will, we decided to call it What Child Is This? Now, we decided to do this because during the next four weeks, we will be trying to look at what the Bible has to say about this child that we will be celebrating on December the 25th. But for those of you who might not be familiar with the season of Advent, the church has historically reserved the last four Sundays before Christmas to prepare our hearts for the coming of our Savior. The word Advent itself means coming. So when we talk about Advent, we are talking about a season of waiting, a season of preparation. This morning, I want to open up with a quote from Fleming Rutledge because she says things in a way that I cannot. She says it way better than I do. And she explains Advent this way. She says, in the church, this is the season of Advent. It's superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas. But in truth, it's the season for contemplating the judgment of God. Advent is a season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that, st that stalks us all in this world. Advent be begins in the dark and moves towards the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of darkness. As our Lord Jesus tells us, unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. How great is that darkness? Advent bids us take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness uh, without and the darkness within. So as you have noticed, the world is officially in the Christmas spirit. We haven't even recovered from the food coma on Thursday, and the world is already in the Christmas spirit, right? Starbucks already has their red cups. Michael Buble, Mariah Carey, and Wham have all come out of their caves, and they are assaulting our ears everywhere we go. There are lights, there are decorations everywhere we go. So <clears throat> the world is already in Christmas mode. The world is ready to celebrate Christmas. The problem is, 
that a whole lot of people don't know what they're celebrating. When we lived in Malaysia, a Muslim country, you would not believe how big the Christmas season is. You go to the mall and the decorations here are nothing compared to what it looks like in Malaysia during the Christmas season. The malls are decked out with amazing trees, lights, and everything Christmas, which is really shocking initially as you're living in a Muslim country until you realize that in our culture, it is equally easy to celebrate a Christless Christmas. If we are not careful during this season, we can be distracted by all the lights, the colors, the smells, and and all the Christmas uh, things that the world sells us. We can be swept up by our culture and completely miss why Christmas was necessary in the first place. So the season of Advent is a season of waiting and preparation for the coming of the Savior. The question is, do we actually need a Savior? Does this world actually need a Savior? Yes. (laughs) Today we will look at a passage that will help us remember why it is that we need a Savior. It is only when we understand our need and our inability to save ourselves that we will lift up our eyes uh, away from ourselves and look for a Savior. If I do my job correctly this morning, my hope is that we would walk away from here remembering that we indeed need a Savior. And that for those of us who already know Jesus, this truth actually makes a claim in the way that we live our lives and the way that we interact with the world around us. This morning, I decided to pick a passage that most of us are not familiar with. But, that, uh, but it has a message that we find throughout all of Scripture. The message of, of hope for a broken world. A message that reminds us that all of history is marching towards the promise of a Savior, a Deliverer, a King that can save us and restore us. Now, but for this, for this passage to make any sense, I need to give you some context. First, I want to give you the literary and historical context of our text this morning. And um, if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is simultaneously one of the most wonderful yet most complex books in the entire Bible. So that leads to the question, what is the context of the book of Isaiah? As you have guessed it, our, verse, our passage this morning is coming from the book of Isaiah. But as you guys know, we have been studying the books of First and Second Samuel. Last week, we left off in 2 Samuel 10. At this point, David is king, and God has recently made a covenant with him. Uh, He promised David that he would build him a house. He would build him a lineage. He would give him offspring. And that one day, out of his offspring, there would be a son who would establish a throne forever. God promised David that from his offspring would come a great king. One that would care for his people. But then Solomon comes around, and though he's a very wise man, he is a great, powerful, wealthy king, he ends his life being a man that ultimately bows to the world and worships foreign gods. From there on, everything starts just going down the drain again. After Solomon's death, things continue to go downhill And the land is split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the cycle of sin and unfaithfulness would continue among the people of God. God, like a loving father, sent prophet after prophet to call his people back and warn them of the impending judgment. 
By the time Isaiah comes around, the hammer is about to fall. God is warning his people that the Assyrians, a foreign nation, is coming to invade them. So Isaiah's message can be summarized into two main points. Like I said, it's a big, complex book. But if you want to make it simple, we can summarize it into two main points. Number one, if Israel continues to be unfaithful to God, they will find only judgment and suffering at the hands of other nations. But the second point is that because God loves his people, there is always a promise of hope. God intends to fulfill his covenants uh, that he's made with Israel despite their faithlessness. In the chapters prior to, to, to chapter 16, Isaiah has warned the people of Israel that because of their unfaithfulness, God will allow the people of Assyria to invade them and to enslave them. This will obviously be very difficult for the people of Israel, but it will bring about purification. And at the end of all things, there will be a remnant through which God will fulfill his promises. You see, God in his mercy will often allow his people to go through the fire, not to hurt them, but to purify them. And that is what he's telling the people of Israel. Now that brings us to chapter 16, which is um, the passage we're reading. And the passage we're reading today is part of a collection of prophecies, not about Israel or the nation of Judah, but about the nations that surround Israel. In these poems, God denounces the pride and the injustice of these nations and tells them of how they too will suffer because of their pride and because of their enmity against God. Now these chapters are warnings about the things to come for these nations. They are grim, they are dark, but they all come laced with hope. In them, God warns them of the danger of living away from him but also makes an invitation for them to surrender to his kingdom. The problem, though, is that the recipients of these prophecies are blinded to their need of a savior. Comfort and the things of this world have distracted them from their need of God. And that, my friends, is a very dangerous place to live in. So uh, this is the context of today's text. How about we read verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 16. And as we read that, I want you to notice that as rebels, we are in desperate need of a Savior. Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 16 say this. It says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. And this is the the word of the Lord. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this first Sunday of, of Ad, Sunday of Advent, Lord, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Father, we surrender to your word. We thank you for your divine revelation, and we pray, speak to us, O Lord. Holy Spirit, stir our hearts to obedience. Stir our hearts and our ears that we would hear your word and that we would be obedient to it. Lord, I pray that as we look at this prophecy that was given to the people of Moab, Lord, that you would use it in your mercy to remind us of the need that we have of a king. Thank you, Lord, because you don't only make promises, but you keep promises, Lord. And so I pray this morning, speak to us in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so this chapter in particular, speaking of a group of people, the people of Moab, but who in the world are the Moabites? I mean, these are one of those names that we hear a lot in scripture, but do we all remember who they are? I certainly had to remind myself who they were. And so, let me remind you this morning. 
Who are the Moabites and why is Isaiah asking them to send a lamb to the king of Zion? Well, the people of Moab were the descendants of Lot, Abraham's cousin. The Moabites had historically been an, en- an enemy of Israel. But as you may remember from a couple of weeks ago, when Rick taught from 2 Samuel 8, David conquers the Moabites. When David is king, he conquers the Moabites, who then become servants of Israel. And the way that they start responding to David's kingship is by paying tribute to the king of Israel. And they do so by sending their lambs. Now, this would unfortunately come to an end in 2 Kings 3. When, the king, uh, when King Ahab dies and the people of Moab rebel against their, uh, his successor and refuse to pay him tribute. This move on their part signifies a rejection not only of the king of Judah, but of the God of Israel, the king of Israel himself. This, my, my, my friends, is what most of us tend to do at some point. Though we know that there is only one king, we often look for our happiness, for our joy, for our hope in the things of the world, and we start paying tribute to the world instead of paying tribute to the one king and God. We unfortunately don't have the time to read chapter 15 together, but if you have time later today, I would encourage you to take a look at it. And in chapter 15, you will see the first part of the warning that, that Isaiah is given to the people of Moab. And there, you will see that, uh, that the warning paints a pretty dark picture of the judgment coming to Moab if they continue to oppose the Lord. In chapter 15, Isaiah warns them that unless they turn to God, the Moabites will find themselves as refugees, going all over the land with their few possessions under their arms, looking for shelter. Verses 3 and 4 of this passage, um, as you will see shortly, also speak of the Moabites as refugees or sojourners. This means that left to themselves in their current situation, whether they see it or not at this moment, if they stay where they are, the Moabites will be defeated. The Moabites will be invaded by the Assyrians, their land will be taken, and they will find themselves in a very vulnerable position. You see, whether they know it or not, the people of Moab are lost and in need of help. I don't know if you have ever talked to someone who's a refugee or an asylum seeker, But if you have, you would know the anxiety and the uncertainty that they live in. Depending on the charity of others, they are often desperate and ready to do whatever they need to do in order to find a place of peace and safety. This is the image that the prophet has given us of the Moabites, an image of desperate vulnerability and danger. So, Chapter 16 starts with a suggestion from the prophet. He says to Moab, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Church, this is a reminder that the people of Moab used to give tribute to the king of Israel, and they stopped. They rebelled against the king of Israel. So Isaiah tells them to do that again. Send the lamb to the king of Israel. For it is only the king of Israel who can deliver them and give them shelter. You see, Isaiah has insight that has been given to him by the Lord himself, by God himself. He knows that though the people of Judah will suffer, they will not be defeated. He knows that that even if the Assyrians and later the Babylonians will come and they will empty their purses and they will take their stuff, he knows that the Israelites will be safe because they are in the hands of God. 
So he's telling the people of Moab, send lamb to the king of Israel. He's pointing them to the one that can give them hope, to the one that can give them safety, to the one that can give them shelter. The problem is that the people of Moab don't know that they need him. In verse 2, Isaiah describes the people of Moab as fleeing birds, like a scattered nest. Other translations translate this phrase as a bird forced out of his nest. What does a bird does when what does a bird do, I'm sorry, when it is forced out of its nest? It tries to find shelter wherever it can. It flutters about looking for shelter. Church, this picture of Moab is not only speaking of the Moabites, but it is describing life in this broken world, you see. This picture is describing how the Moabites will feel once they their wealth and worldly comforts are taken from them. And church, this is where the world finds itself. Whether they know it or not, they are like birds fluttering about, looking for shelter, looking for safety, looking for help on everything but God. But you see, hardship has a way of revealing where our hopes lie. Comfort, though, has a way of blinding us from where our, heart truly, uh, our hearts truly are. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, the world is full of those who are like birds, forced out of their nest, and so flutter about finding shelter in things that are only supposed to be temporary. Things that offer no ultimate safety. Like Adam and Eve, we hide under fig leaves and hope that would give us protection that only God himself can give us. We flutter from thing to thing, trying to find safety in it, hope, significance that can only be found in God. At times, we put our, our hopes in our job or our career. Other times, we put our hope in our bank accounts, on the things that we own. Other times, maybe we, we find ourselves um, finding safety in our relationships that we have. Other times, we, find, we try to find safety in our political party or our political movement, thinking that that is the thing that will ultimately bring us happiness and success and protection. Not only do we place our hope in those things, but we also pay tribute to those things. This, my friends, is what we call idolatry. Martin Luther says this. He says, idolatry is not only the adoration of images, as we would think, but also trusting one's own righteousness, work, and merits, and putting confidence in riches and power. And we can add to the list riches, power, politics, sports, Church, I am loving the World Cup, and I know most of you guys being American do not understand what I mean by this, but the best event in sports is going on right now in the whole world, and I love it. But it breaks my heart to see those that are worshiping men that are following a ball, who put their hopes in broken men that are kicking a ball. Church, we don't often like using this language of idolatry, but the reality is that because we are worshipers, if our worship is not aimed at God, it will always be aimed towards a lesser thing. Oliver Cromwell said this, idolatry is anything which cooleth thy desire after Christ. So church, let me ask you this morning, is there anything in your life where you're putting your hopes? Is there anything in your life that is so living in your mind uh, so, so managing and manipulating your thoughts that it's cooling your desire after Christ. The problem, church, 
is that our idols are stripped naked by suffering and show for what they truly are when the light of eternity shines on them. So God in his mercy will often allow hardship to shake us awake. So the question is, where will we find hope if all our wealth and worldly comforts are taken from us? In our time of need, the things that monopolize our thoughts and energy won't even matter. The problem is that like the Moabites, we can be so unaware of our need of a Savior that we go about life looking for other things. The picture the prophet is painting here is a grim picture of hopelessness for Moab. The purpose of it is to serve as a warning for the nations not to put their hope in the things of this world. This new revelation uh, for the people of Moab demands a response not only from Moab, but also from the people of God in Judah. Now, I want us to jump around a little bit because I want us to see Moab's response to this offer of hope and help and protection and safety. And for that, I want us to go to verses 6 through 8. And I think I messed up in the notes and I put 7 to 14, but I want us to read 6 through 8. And this is what it says. It says, We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. And in his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab, let everyone wail. Mourn utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Hariseth, for the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread aboard, abroad and passed over the sea. Church, in this next few verses, we will see three things. In verses 13 through 14, we will see the end of Moab, how they will end. Number two, in verses six and seven that we just read, we see the reason behind their end. And three, uh, verses 9 through 11, we will see how God feels about what's happening to Moab. First, we see how things end for Moab in verses 13 and 14. The Lord says that the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. This speaks of the destruction, a humiliation of Moab. It speaks of Moab as a vine that has been trampled and destroyed. A nation that is wailing and defeated of which only a fivel few will remain. We see a nation crying out to their false gods, but not being heard. It's a sad picture of defeat and hopelessness, a life far from God and his kingdom. The question is why? Why do they find themselves here? And to understand why, we have to turn to verses 6 and 7, which we just read, which says, we have heard of the pride of Moab. Church, do you see this? Pride is the reason behind the fall of Moab. You see, Warren Worsby says that it was because they, the fact that they wanted Judah's help, but they did not want Judah's God. The people of Moab were proud, and it was pride that kept them from submitting to God. They were in a terrible and hopeless situation. They were in need of a savior, but they wanted to be delivered on their own terms. The Moabites were a proud people who rejected the Lord and would one day pay the consequences for their rejection. Now let me ask you, how does God feel about this? How do you think he feels about this? After making an offer to the people of Moab, and they reject it because of their pride, how do you think God feels? Surely, he's enjoying it. 
Surely, he's saying, I told you. Surely, he's scoffing at their foolishness. But no. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. And I want you to see this. It says, therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sipma. And here you will see a lot of names, and they're just different areas, different cities around Moab. But this is what it says. It says, therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sipma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon of Eliela, for over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased, and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to their shouting. Therefore, and listen to this, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, in my inmost self for Kirhasareth. Church, God says he weeps. And in his inner parts, he moans like a liar for Moab. Do you see this? God does not delight in the fall of those who proudly reject him. Far from it. He weeps for them. And let me ask you this morning. How about you, dear brother and sister? Do you delight in the fall of the proud unbeliever around you? Or maybe do you resent a proud unbeliever? a co-worker, a friend, a family member that mocked you during Thanksgiving dinner? Do you maybe have an unbelieving friend, family member that is hostile towards you or even your faith? Maybe they recently tested you around the turkey. Let me ask you, do you hope for their fall? Do you hope for the fall of the unbeliever who disagrees with you politically? Do you look down on them? Do you despise the unbeliever that mocks you and opposes you? You see, the believer cannot afford to do that. You see, the people of Israel may have been tempted to rejoice in the fall and humiliation of Moab, their enemy, but they weren't allowed to. Why? First, because that is not the attitude God is modeling in this text. His heart is not boastful, but gentle and sorrowful. Second, because Israel knows that they are no better than the Moabites. They know that they were chosen by God because of God's great love for them. Not because of anything that was impressive or specifically different about them. It was only God's love um, that chose them. And lastly... Because we will see shortly, God actually calls the people of Judah to welcome the outcast, the proud Moabite in their time of need. And for that, I want us to read verses 3 and 4. And here we will see that the people of God are called to welcome the weak. Verses 3 and 4 say this. It says, Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of, the noon, of noon, shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive, let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has banished from the land. Church, verses 3 and 4 could be summarized as God giving the people of Judah two imperatives. The first one being, give counsel, grant justice, which in other words can be translated as, make up your mind and decide. So the first imperative is, make up your mind and decide. The second one being, welcome the outcast and the sojourner. The call here is for the people of God to decide to be a place that welcomes the proud Moabite in their time of need. Church, the world is a desert 
full of sojourners, some of which will undoubtedly be proud Moabites that are hostile towards the people of God. And yet, the church needs to be a place that is ready to welcome the spiritual sojourner and shelter them. Church, it's a shame when this church looks exactly like one person. The church is called to be a place that welcomes the sojourner. And by that, I don't mean just the immigrant, which that is included, but the spiritual sojourner, the one that's confused, the one that has been looking for safety, the one that has been looking for hope in dark places. Church, we are called to be a place of shelter for them. Far from scoffing at those who we might perceive as other, we are called to be a place that welcomes them. The spiritual refugee will be hungry and in search of a place of safety. And only the church of Jesus Christ can offer true shelter for those who are lost. Church, this has been the plan, uh, this has been God's plan from the beginning. For his people to be a blessing to the nations, just as he told Abraham in his covenant. Earlier in Isaiah 2, the Lord says this through the prophet Isaiah. He says, Isaiah 2, and th- uh, 2 verses 2 and 3, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Listen to this. That they may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Church, when the Old Testament speaks of Zion, it is shorthand for the people of God. This includes the church of Jesus Christ today. You see, it has been God's plan from the beginning to lift up his house, to lift up the church, to lift up his people, so that the nations would see him as a lighthouse and flow to it. Church, our world is a dark, dark place, full of people wandering from place to place looking for hope. People who, like the Moabites, are hopeless but don't know it. Their wealth, their comfort, and even their education and their trust in the thing of this world blinds them to their need of a Savior. And it is up to the church of Jesus Christ to bring forth the word of the Lord to the nations, to shine a light in the darkness. It is our responsibility to point them to the promise we find in verses 4 and 5, which leads me to my last point. Our hope is found in the promise of a Savior. Verses, uh, verses 4, uh, the second part of 4 and verse 5 says this. It says, When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Church, I know that all this talk of a dark and broken world filled with those who are lost does not sound much like Christmas. But that is precisely the background of Christmas. That is precisely what the Advent season is meant to do in our hearts to remind us of the dark reality of the miserable world we live in so that we would see how bright the light of Christ is truly in this world. 
You see, this passage reminds us that one day the oppressor will be no more. One day this world will cease to be as we know it. One day, the prophet promises, a throne will be established in steadfast love, hesed, as we saw last week. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tents of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to the righteousness. Church, the people of Judah, the original recipients of this prophecy, would have no idea who this coming king was. Their best guess would have been that another, another king from the line of David would come and just be an awesome king, which would ultimately be true in a very different way that they thought. But church, we know better. We get to proclaim to this broken world, dark as it is, that this king has come, that he has established a throne in steadfast love, has said, a love that is merciful, and undeserved for those who seek him. Church, this takes us back to, it it sounds like an echo of Isaiah 9-6, which we just read earlier. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Church, this king that is being promised in this passage, we know his name. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. That is a king that has established his throne and that will one day come back. This is what we eagerly await the season of Advent. We know that he has come. And we look around and the world is just equally as broken. It's a mess out there. But we set our eyes in Emmanuel, who promised that he would come back one day. Church, that is Advent. This is the context of Advent. This is the dark background of the bright light of Christmas. And in that dark background, God makes a promise that offers hope, not only for the Jews, but for all the nations that would submit to his kingship. So church, This promise, I believe, has two different applications, or two applications for two main groups, if you will. First, it offers hope and help to those who, will, who, who like the Moabites, I'm sorry, have turned their backs on God and are fluttering about life like confused birds trying to find safety, meaning, and purpose on lesser things. If this is you, if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, If you are confused and are looking for meaning and you're looking for hope, this text will give you a warning of the hopelessness um, of this place, of this world in which we'll leave, in which we live in, I'm sorry, for those who reject the Lord. Church, for those who oppose the Lord, this broken and dark world is the closest thing that will ever be to heaven. But it is also, this passage is also an invitation for hope and for salvation. This is the king himself offering salvation to those that would submit to him. Those that would seek him. So let me ask you this morning. What will you do about this invitation? Will you, like the Moabites, allow your pride to keep you away from salvation? Or will you turn to him this morning? If this is what you want to do, Please come to us at the end of the service 
If you want to submit to this king, I would invite you, please come talk to us. You can talk to me, to Tim, to any of the elders. If you're too shy to do that, talk to the person that invited you this morning. We would love to tell you about Jesus and to point you to this wonderful king that God has given us. But this is also an application for those of us who have already submitted to God. Those who are now part of his people. Church, this passage makes a demand of us. It demands that we would, as the church of Jesus Christ, be a safe place for those who are lost and wandering. That with kindness, we would point them to Jesus, the loving and merciful King. Let me just say this again, lest you hear what I'm not saying. This does not mean that we are a place that welcomes anything, that welcomes any truth. We welcome people to point them to the truth. To Jesus Christ. We do that with the love and patience that God had with us. I don't know about you, but he was patient with me. I don't know about you, but I was a fool. I was was a fool that rejected him over and over again. And he, with a patience, with a loving kindness, has said, he received me and loved me. Church of the world is fooling itself, celebrating a superficial Christmas. That one looks at lesser things like lights, like gifts, like foods, and red cups at Starbucks. Uh, and looks at silly things like the made-up uh, Christmas spirit. Church, let us be a place of hope for that world. Let us be mindful of our responsibility to point our neighbor to the true light. The light that came that Christmas night. What child is this? The world might be asking. Let us make sure we have an answer and point them to the King of Kings that came to this world as a baby 2,000 years ago and has promised to come back for those who are kissed. Church, let us respond to the Lord in worship. Would you join us as we sing this morning?